0: 20 in just a moment romans chapter 6 and verse 20 i do hope you'll be back with us for the evening service bring your bible along Brother the byron will be speaking so hope you'll come and be here with us for that service at six o'clock this evening and don't forget the fellowship to follow after the service here in the auditorium we'll meet over in the ministry building and hope that you can be with us there appreciate um Leslie Bird. Leslie's been with us for a while, but uh, this will probably be his last service for a while. But it's been good to have him here. I hope that you will get to say uh, goodbye for a while to him. And you'll be praying for him. The Lord will direct his steps in his future as he leaves here and moves back to the Milam area. So you pray for him if you would. Here in Romans chapter 6, verse number 20, Paul writes to the church at Rome. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This passage will conclude chapter 6, and Lord willing, we'll get through all of it. Some Sundays we only get a verse, this Sunday we'll get four. And this passage of scripture reminds me to remind you that there are in this auditorium this morning only two classes of people. There are people who we say are saved, folks who have believed on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and are confident that when they die, they'll go to heaven based on what Christ did and has done, not based on what they are doing. So there's that group. Then there's this other group of people who are not saved. They're not believers. They're not Christian. And it's not that they're not desires to be. It's just that they're not doing it right. They've not believed on Christ. They probably, in some degree, think they're good enough. They keep the Ten Commandments. They try to obey the Lord. Local Laws and ordinances, they try to do good. They try to treat their fellow man with some common decency. They try to do all those things. The problem with that idea is the solution is humanistic. It is what man's trying to do in order to satisfy God. You must understand something. Nothing humans can do satisfies God apart from first being touched with salvation. See, all our righteousnesses, and that means all your good works, all the things that you could boast and brag about, all of those are as filthy rags when it comes to pleasing God. And it's, by the way, not just in salvation. We sometimes take the Isaiah passage and say, well, that's all about salvation. That's not just about salvation. That's all your works. That's your service. That's all your attitude attitude, your actions, anything and everything about us is displeasing to him. And I read in the Sunday school just this morning, and uh, our Lord spoke these words, Luke chapter 11, you may, if you were in the preliminaries, you heard it. He talked about the business of uh, praying, and he's talked about the business of getting prayers answered. And the Lord says, if you being evil, isn't that interesting? He's given an illustration about people, and he said, you who are evil, if you who are evil, he's talking about us. We're still evil. We're not not the best thing that came off the shelf. We're still at heart sinful people. You may have been saved by the grace of God. If you are, we rejoice with you. But don't you think for a second you've arrived. He's still working on you. We're still under construction. So there's two classes of people. Those who are saved trusting only in the finished work of Christ and that group of people who are not saved And who are maybe trying to trust their own efforts to get themselves to heaven. Whatever the case is, there's only two groups of people in this auditorium this morning. And right here, right now, you need to cross the line and decide which side of the fence you're on. Do you know Christ as Savior? And are you trusting Him and Him alone to get you to heaven? Or are you one of those who says, I'm not saved, I don't really care to talk about it, I'm not interested in it, uh, I am religious, I go to church on Sundays, I do have a Bible in my home somewhere. Uh, yeah, whatever the case is, my friend, you need to face the reality of this truth. You see, it is appointed unto man once to die, and that can happen today for you, for me, or for anybody else. And once that comes, it will be too late for you to make a decision for Christ. So I urge you, exhort you, and as it were, plead with you. That if you do not know Christ, that you listen carefully to the message today and respond in accordance to what the Apostle Paul would, I believe, have you do, as would our Lord and as would I. In Romans chapter 6, in the passage I've just read to you, reminds me of the fact that most of the 20th century, 21st century people, you and I fit into that group, have grown up under the banner of what we call freedom, real freedom. And that's in this country we call America that we love so much. Doing pretty much as they please when they please and where they please. And fact of the matter is, we are all probably addicted. We are all probably addicted to freedom. The strange thing about it is we're probably totally unaware of how addicted we are to freedom until we lose it. And then we'll be aware of it. Then we'll be aware of it. People who sometimes go to jail, you know, I, I don't think Martha Stewart realizes if Martha Stewart gets there. I don't think she understands what a loss of freedom is. I don't think she'll understand that it's not going to be a piece of cake and you're not going to go in there and bake one. You know, that's not what it's going to be like. The fact of the matter is, it is a loss of freedom that has such an impact on people's lives. It's people who have to be placed in homes where they have to give up driving. They have to give up all the personal private possessions they own. And they go into a place called a home. And there, they have absolutely, as it were, no freedom to go when, where, how they want to. They're under rules, regulations, and schedules. You see, I think in this country, we're addicted to freedom. We don't really realize it, but we will when we lose it. It reminds me of a story in the New Testament that fits well in this Romans 6 passage. Let me read it to you quickly. It's found in John 8. John chapter 8. Begin reading verse number 28. John 8:28, not Romans 8:28, but John 8:28. Our Lord is talking here and he's involved in a conversation. He starts in verse 28. Then Jesus said unto them, "When ye have lifted up the Son of man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself." But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Boy, that ought to be a a goal for every believer. Verse 30, And he spake these words, many believed on him. That's good news. Verse 31, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. You see, it's one thing to believe on him. It's another thing to be a disciple. The distinction is made in verse 31. If you continue in my word, you can be a disciple. Believing on me will have a relationship with Christ, be saved, go on your way to heaven. But it will take more than that for you to really be a true disciple, a follower, an understudy of the Lord Jesus. Verse 32, and he, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That's an interesting thing that he says the truth that he is speaking gives people real freedom. It goes back to the message or the statement at the beginning of the message, and that is there are folks in this room who are not saved, and what they don't understand is neither are they free. Well, they think they're free because they can do whatever they want to, when they want to, and so forth. They think that's of their choosing, but really it's what we call sin driven freedom. Sin driven freedom. Look at verse number 33. Somebody spoke up in the group and answered him and said, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou that ye shall be made free? Verse 34. Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that whosoever committeth sin. Whosoever committeth sin. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Otherwise... He is a slave to sin. The word committeth carries the idea that he that practices makes it a pattern of his life. That's his lifestyle. That person is not free. That person is in bondage. And our Lord declares declares that in verse number 34, And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth. Verse 36, If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. There's only one way to really have and enjoy freedom. These people didn't realize. In fact, I don't know they didn't realize or they just didn't want to accept it or they totally ignored it. But the fact of the matter is Jewish history, the facts of Jewish history would bear out that the Jews had been in successive bondage, successive kind of slavery to the Egyptians the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks and finally the Romans. And how dare this guy say, we have, we've always been free. Yeah, He might have been free from the standpoint that his own perception but history would say, oh no my friend, you've been in bondage to all these peoples and our Lord was even talking about a different kind of bondage. He was talking about a bondage of sin to which every human being is born. Everybody in this room was born A slave to sin. And you'll die a slave to sin unless you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This Jewish person who speaks up here in John chapter 8 was under an evil illusion. An evil illusion. That is not knowing or not accepting the facts as they were. Not knowing and all of us I hope know or at least should know that there are really only two possible masters of all mankind. And that's the devil or God. It finds it interesting that uh, all through the Scriptures, when you're reading the Scriptures, you run across this quite frequently, that both the devil and God seeking for mankind to worship them. I ran across this week in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 9, And he saith unto them, All these things will I give thee. This is the devil speaking to our Lord when he had him out in the wilderness when he tempted him. All of these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Boy, the devil's got gall, isn't he? He just isn't after God's people. He's after God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was, in fact, God of very God. If you, God of very God, will fall down and worship me, verse 10, Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. That's an amazing thing, by the way, because what this verse of Scripture points out, in fact, these two verses here point out, Whatever you worship, whatever you worship... Whatever you worship, you will serve to some degree. So you better make sure what you worship is the right thing. That means if you worship making money, I hate to disappoint you, but it won't get you far beyond the casket. All those other things that you may worship, you better make sure it's the eternal thing, and you better make sure it's the eternal God, because that's what Scripture teaches. Whatever it is that you worship, you will serve to some degree. And consequently, it is in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 where it says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. So the fact of the matter is, you've got to make up your mind who it is that I'm going to worship, who it is that I'm going to serve by virtue of that worship relationship. By the way, when Israel was in bondage in Egypt, you remind yourself of the story, I hope, it was that uh, the Lord spoke, God spoke to Moses, said go in and tell Pharaoh a couple of things. One of the things that he told him in Exodus chapter 7 in verse number 16 is this, Thou shalt say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wouldest not hear. It's an interesting thing. What was going on here, you have this Pharaoh who is a puppet of the devil. ...who is standing up and holding God's people in bondage... ...and God is sending a message in by Moses and saying... ...you tell him to let my people go so they can go serve me out in the wilderness. Interesting thing here. Uh, They wanted to sacrifice first and then it was after they sacrificed... ...which would represent worship, it was they were to serve him out there. Also interesting here, it would make... ...making a choice to serve God... ...was relatively easy for the Hebrews... ...who knew that in Egypt... They had to work harder, longer hours, and as it were, about the brick-making deal, you know, where they first got all the supplies brought to where they were working. Then they weren't turning out enough, and they had too much time on their hands, and so Pharaoh decreed that from now on, they had to go get their own brick, and they had to make all the brick, and they had to work all the long hours, but the Hebrew people would have to gather their own materials. That's how hard it was. They were a hard taskmaster. It was very easy then for the Hebrews to say, hey, I'm going. I I want to go out of Egypt. I want to go serve the Lord God because staying here is nothing but a madhouse of labor. I don't like this. I don't enjoy this. That's so unlike it is today. What's closer to what it is today is what Paul wrote in the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, For they themselves show of us... What manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Let me explain that. There's a fact of the matter is that Paul spoke about it, that these idols represented devils. He wrote about that in First Corinthians. When we studied first Corinthians, we alluded to that. That that's what an idol represents. It you know, God doesn't need idols of him, he is alive and well and present. But people made idols, and oftentimes these idols became, in a sense, a stepping stone to devil worship. Well, the fact is, these people who worshipped these idols in the Thessalonica church had a tendency toward believing that all their needs that got supplied were being supplied because they worshipped these idols. Let me say it to you this way. Unlike the Hebrews who wanted to leave Egypt because the work was so hard and the labor was so grinding. It's hard to choose to serve God when what you're serving is serving you well. You get the picture? If you're here in this auditorium this morning and life is going relatively well for you, and you are not a believer... And I get up here and urge you to leave your master and change masters this morning. Change from bowing to the idol of whatever it is you're worshiping. And come over here and serve the true and leaving God. You may say, wait a minute, I'm not going to rock the boat. You know, I got a good job. I'm relatively healthy. Things are going my way. I'm a happy camper. And you're trying to tell me that I ought to change masters right in the midst of all this? You're telling me I ought to give up on my idols and whatever it is I'm worshiping and I ought to come over here to serve the living and true God? Listen, preacher, you, don't have, you have rocks for brains. Why would I want to do that? And my answer to, do, to you would be simply this. You see, people see life going their way and they see no reason to rock the boat, but they miss a verse of Scripture that's very important. There is a way... That seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. I don't care what it seems like to you. If it violates what God says and what God declares, you better change ships, masters, and programs before it's eternally too late. And that's exactly what this text of Scripture says and speaks to us about. The fact is every person is born into this world a slave to sin, addicted to sin as a drug, corrupted by sin as a disease. And every person serves something because there's no such thing as moral neutrality. You can't stand on the sidelines and say, I don't believe in anything. It won't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Let me call your attention to the outline of these four verses, and this is what we'll cover in the message this morning. First off, in verse number 20, we'll talk about what freedom. In verse 21 and 22, we'll talk about what fruit. And then finally, in verse 23, we'll talk about what future. I call your attention to verse 20, first of all, and that deals with this business of what freedom. You see, verse number 20 says, "...for when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness." How can I title the message, Sinners Are Free, when I've just said that everyone is born in this world is born a slave to sin? I can say it because of what verse 20 says. Where, While you are servants of sin, you are free. The rest of the verse says, free from righteousness. Free from righteousness. You see, when somebody tells you you're free, you ought to find out what you're free from or free to do. You see, there's all kinds of freedom. But the fact is, you're going to need to find out and get a clarification on freedom to or for what. And in this context, every sinner is free. Free for what? He's free from righteousness. What in the world does it mean to be free from righteousness? I can tell you. It means that a person who is not a believer has absolutely no interest, no responsibility, no concern, and absolutely no ability to bow down to anything that is right. That's what it means. He is a slave to sin and he's free from all righteousness. He has no interest in doing right. That's why it's so stupid in this country to pass more laws. You know who has to get paid? You know who has to pay the price when we pass new laws on his people? You and me. You can pass a thousand laws about 10,000 subjects and the only people who will obey them are the people who already obey them. The guy who's not going to obey a law is not going to obey a law. And you can make all you want, and he's not going to change that. All the laws in the world will not change the heart of mankind. And consequently, our country doesn't understand that. They work on a secular principle, a humanistic principle, not a biblical principle. And because of that, they don't understand man's heart. They don't understand he can't obey it. He has no desire to obey it, and he won't obey it. Why? Because he's free from righteousness. He's free from it. You can talk to him about doing right, and he's going to say, do what? I mean, if this guy goes down to Walmart, they, they somehow make a transaction, and they, they don't charge him enough, and he comes away with $10 more than he went, on, went in with, and he's got $50 worth of supplies, you think if you catch him in the parking lot and say, hey, buddy, you ought to go back and let these people know they made a mistake, give them their money back or give them the merchandise back, he's going to laugh you out of the lot. You know Why? Because he's free of righteousness, he has no standard of righteousness. He has nothing in his heart or mind that says you have to bow to this. He's free from that. That's what the verse says. Sinners are free. They don't have any cognizant code that lies within their hearts. Oh yes, they have conscience, and without doubt, chapter one of Romans spoke about that thing being consciously aware of God. But just because he's aware of God does not mean he goes down a list of ten commandments and say, "Hey, I obey all of these." It's not how it works. It's not what the scriptures teach. To be a slave of sin is to be actually an enemy of righteousness. He actually fights against it. He's free from anything about it or anything that pertains to it. But I can tell you this, because he's a slave of sin, whatever you yield to becomes your master. By the way, that reminds me of the story in in Luke chapter 15. I read it again this week just to refresh my mind and memory of it. It's the story of the prodigal son. The story points out much of the truth that's found right here in Romans chapter 6. You have the story of these two sons. One is the elder, one's the younger. The younger son is at home with his father, and one day he decides that he wants his own freedom. He wants to be free. And so he tells his father that he's going to hit the road. His father then gives to him his inheritance. The boy takes his inheritance. He begins to make his journey freely and foolishly to spend his inheritance as he will. In his pursuit of this freedom, it's an interesting thing in the story that he only gets deeper into the slavery. He gets into the slavery of wicked desires. He gets into the slavery of wrong deeds. And he finally ends up a slave to working with disgusting swine. And as a Jewish person, that was about as bad as he got. But what this young man did is what so many people presently do. And that is what he thought was freedom ended up being the worst kind of slavery of all. This guy found freedom when he realized he was a slave. He found freedom when he realized... The slave he was. And when he realized the slave that he was, he simply came to himself, the scriptures say in Luke chapter 15, and he returned home, he confessed his sin, he submitted himself to the authority of his father. Isn't that amazing? This guy who wanted freedom and said, look, I'm not free. I need to get out of here so I can be free. And he hits the road, takes his money with it, spends all of it, bows to every desire of the flesh and the lust of the flesh. And then the young man finds himself bankrupt in a hog lot. And when he came to himself, he says, hey, look, there's a better way than this. Let me tell you what the devil did to him and what the devil will do to you. The devil tempts us so often to go looking elsewhere for what we had all along. We were just blind to it. Just blind to it. Sinners are free from righteousness, they have no interest in it, and they are not submitted to it. There's a reverse of it, spoken of in Romans chapter 6, it's in verse 18. Romans six eighteen says, Being then made free from sin, he became the servants of righteousness. That's the opposite of what verse 20 says. The opposite is true. It is absolutely foolish for liberal churches in our community, in our country, in our world, to preach and teach sinners to reform absolutely foolish you see sinners are bound by every evil and they're free from every good and the fact of the matter is that they are absolutely unreformable by your statements my statements or my persuasion are yours it takes the grace of God the reason he or she is free from righteousness they have no interest no desire and ultimately no ability to do right they will never reform their lives until Christ transforms their hearts when that happens then these people can do right they can change from what verse 20 says and they can cease being servants of sin instead of being free from righteousness they'll be servants of righteousness and by the way need to understand that in God's eyes from the perspective he holds there's nothing that man can do apart from salvation that will count in eternity not a thing That's the freedom. Now look, if you would please, that's the second point. And this was exceedingly important. And that is, what fruit? Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, What fruit had ye then in those things, whereof ye are now ashamed, for the end of those things is death? Verse 22, But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. History would tell you and history would warn you that nothing gained by sin is worth the price you'll have to pay to get it. Never has been, never will be. Look at verse 21. What Paul is saying to you is he's asking you to take stock or take an inventory of your life of what I call the lost life. You see verse 21. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now? Ashamed. He's talking about your lost life. If you're here and you've been saved by the grace of God, there was a time you were not. He's saying, take a look over the lost life. Take a look back. And, and, and you tell me what fruit you produced during that period of your life. Sin and sorrow. What did, you, what did your life produce when you were without Christ? Take an inventory. That's what he's asking. What fruit? Tell me. Had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? Tell me about your lost life. What fruit did you produce? That's what he asked these people. Boy, some of us would think that and say, Man, you talk about sinful, shameful. We don't want to talk about that. Been forgiven of that, and we don't want to ever bring that up again. Well, Paul, in this case, is not asking you to bring up the sin. He's asking you to bring up the fruit of the sin. What did you produce? What did it create in your life? What did it do for you? And it's interesting here, someone wrote, in fact, a man by the name of Marcus Rainsford wrote, he inventoried his own life, and he put down seven things that he looked back over his lost life and came up with. He said, one, faculties were abused. Affections were prostrated or beaten down. Time was squandered. Influence was misused. Best friends were wronged. Our best interests were violated. Love was outraged, especially toward the love of God. To sum it all up, I can in one word. Shame. That's what my life was before Christ. Let me do this. Do you look back over your lost life and do you think of the shame that goes with some of those events and your fruit that you produced? Not all that long ago, I stood in a parking lot talking with a person and... uh, This gentleman and a woman walked up, and this woman knew the man to whom I was speaking. And uh, as the conversation, you know, was going, uh, we were involved in uh, some discussion about some matters he was interested in and some uh, advice he wished. And so I stopped what I was saying to him, and he addressed the woman. He spoke to her, and after a few moments of conversation, they went on. He took a sideline, a rabbit trail, and he said, I, I guess you'd like to know who that lady was. I said, well, you know, neither here nor there. I don't know her. Uh, and he didn't introduce me to her. And he said, well, let me explain and give you a bit of the story. He told me the story. This woman was not married. He had talked with this woman, witnessed to her, in fact, five, six, seven years ago. She rejected his witness, told him he wasn't interested, didn't go to the church where he invited her. He asked her to go to a revival meeting. She refused. And so this young woman met up with a young man who seemed to care about her deeply. And so she and he begin to live together, unmarried, but live together, and she has a child. The young man hit the road after the child was born, wants nothing to do with it, will not provide any money for the young child. And so now the young woman is stuck with rearing that child, and she's having a very difficult time with it. And to top it all off, she has a disease for which she'll probably die in a few months, and somebody's going to have to rear that child. And he said, and I'm sure somewhere along the way it's going to get down to my level of family relationship because I'm a, and he named a relationship to her. Let me tell you something, that's the way sin works, and it just keeps on causing people shame, and it keeps on causing people problems, and it keeps on costing people. Takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more than you'll want to pay. That's what sin always does. Always has, always will. In this particular case, important for you We all should know that sin always promises more than it delivers. And none of sin's fruit is worth having. None of it. Nothing that sin produces is worth having. By the way, let me cue you on something. One thing sin delivers on. One thing that sin delivers on that it'll never tell you about. It'll never tell you this. Whatever sin you get tempted to, whatever sin you walk toward, there will not be a sign hanging on it saying, by the way, when you get to the end of this, here's what you can expect. It'll never be there. And that is death. You see, the passage of Scripture before us here in verse number 21 What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now shamed? For the end of those things is what? Speak to me louder death. That's exactly what sin does. Those things that you're ashamed of, those are sinful things. And what did they lead to? They lend to death. Did sin hang that up and say, hey look, now when you get to the end of this sin, here's what you're going to have to deal with. That's not what it does. It it promises a lot, delivers a little, but one thing it never mentions is you're going to die. Sin will kill you. God wants you and I to know this because interesting in this chapter, chapter number six of Romans three times. Look at it. Verse number 16. Verse 16 it says For ye or know ye not that to whom ye you yield yourselves servants to obey his servants you are to whom you obey whether of sin and to death Or of obedience unto righteousness. Look at verse 21. In verse 21, the verse we just read, For what fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And then down to verse 23, For the wages of sin is death. Three times in the chapter, it tells you that there's a correlation between sin and death. And so every time you think of sin and every time you think of sinning, then you ought to think of dying, death. And then if you do that, you've got it down right, because that's exactly what it says. Now look at the contrast in verse 22. Verse 21 is dealing with us and our old life, and now verse 22. I always love the phrase when Paul writes it, but now. Boy, there's some hope there. It's like the sun coming up. You know, it's about the darkness of the storm in verse 21, but now get to change horses, change canoes, and cross a new finish line. But now, being made free from sin, become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and everlasting life. Four things in the verse, and you don't want to miss them. First, number one thing is being. That's a a present position. Being presently positioned free of sin. Free of sin. Now, let me explain this to you again, because I don't want you to get through all of Romans and miss this. The fact of the matter is, what Paul has been hammering away at is when Christ died on the cross for you, he paid your sin debt. That's why we say around here, there is nothing more for you to do, do, to be saved. Christ died for you to pay your sin debt. All that's left for you to do, the scriptures are clear. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's just believing is what's left for us to do, not doing the second thing that happened, though, when Christ died on the cross is He made a provision for you so you could be freed from sin. And now what it is, you have the ability in you by God's Spirit that He provided to say no to every sin that comes your way. Now listen, some of you believe in justification by faith, but you don't believe in freedom from sin by faith. You, I, Now, preacher, that's just too much. That's too far. Let me tell you something. Any God that can plan a plan of salvation that can redeem you from your sin for all eternity and hold you a place in heaven, don't you think for a heartbeat who couldn't give you grace, strength, and ability to say no to every sin that knocks at your heart's door. He can. Our problem is we don't want to. Let's face it. Sin is fun or there wouldn't be any problem to it. Let's face it. Sin at first in its onset has all kinds of good things to it. All kinds of things of which entice us and seduce us and encourage us. But the further you get into it, it rings hollow of all the things that it promises. And our Lord knew that. And He said, look, I'm not just going to pay their sin debt so they can live a Christian life and go to heaven when they die. I'm going to make a provision for them so that they can actually say no to sin when it comes knocking at their heart's door. And He did. And that's why in this chapter, it's been over and over again, you've been freed from sin. How are you freed from sin? Preachers, that mean you never sin again? Well, let me tell you, to you this way. The probably there. I just don't think you'll do that. There's no verse of Scripture that says you will sin, guaranteed, you have to, no choices after you're saved. Not a one. We do what we do because we want to do it. And Paul, when we get over to chapter 7, is going to confess that very thing. What's amazing about this, even though chapter 7 by some is called the hardest, most difficult, challenging chapter in the whole book of Romans... I don't think it's that hard. Now, I'm stupid. I know that. And that may be why, you know. I said that to a preacher one time. And he said, well, stupid people don't think things are hard. They just, just go into them blindly. I, I've read the chapter several times. And I don't think it's as hard as some guys want to make it. I think what, when you come to chapter 7, Paul is saying the same thing personally. By the way, I mean, you ought to just go through chapter 7 as I already have. And look at all the pronouns. I, me, ah, good grief. This guy's getting very personal in chapter 7. When he gets over to chapter 7, he's going to tell you, look... These things apply to me. I mean, I've been preaching to you in chapter 6 about the freedom from sin. Now it's time for the rubber to meet the road. And I am going to do all this. So it's a practical chapter about Paul the Apostle giving you an insight to his own life and his own testimony about what's going on with him. I say to you, say all that to say this, when he comes to verse number 22, but now being made free from sin, Paul is saying this is a present possession to which you are not looking, I'm going to die to sin. I'm going to be freed from sin. He says I am in this moment. So let me ask you a personal question. By faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ Do you recognize the truth of verse number 22, that you have been made free from sin? That you can say no to sin when it comes knocking at your door. Do you grasp that? Do you understand that? It's not you trying, it's the fact that the price has been paid, the provision has been provided, and you can say no. It's an important truth, and Paul hammers away it. That's only the first thing of the four. Look at the second one, and the second in verse number 22, and become servants of God. Remember I told you early on that I believe the Scriptures connect this business of understanding freedom from sin and being a servant of Christ. And this verse is an excellent verse to prove the point. And become servants of God. Whereas once you serve sin, and you are a servant of whatever masters you, whatever you yield to, you are a servant of. And if sin masters you, then you're a servant of sin. And when you come to realize you don't have to be, and you walk out from under that yoke of bondage, and then you begin to submit yourself to the righteousness of Christ, to which He wants you to live after, which He's declared you so, He's enrobed you so, He wants you just to practice what you already possess. And what we say, we say, well, that, that just seems impossible. You know why? Because we're used to practicing sin. That's why it seems that way. And in this verse of Scripture, he says something else. Not only are you made free from sin and not only you become the servants of God, but here's something else. Now the good news is you have your fruit unto holiness. What's this saying? Why are we talking about a fruit unto holiness? Because what he had talked about before in verse number 21, you'll never again have to be ashamed of the fruit that your life produces if you know Jesus Christ as Savior and you embrace the fact that you have been provided with the ability of grace to say no to sin. You won't ever have to be ashamed again of the fruit that your life produces. That's the difference. You don't have to go around apologizing. You would always go around and say, look, by the grace of God, here's what God did in my life and changed me from this to that and now I'm living this way. We don't need to go back and tell everybody all of our sin and explain all of the wickedness of which we participate. Not necessary, in fact, scripturally out of order. What you need to do is begin to praise the Lord for what He has done to change you from a life that was at once ashamed of a behavior to now to one that has produced a fruit unto holiness of which you can be pleased and grateful and humbled. Then there's a fourth thing, and then the fourth thing is something futuristic, and He said, And the end, and buddy, there is an end. I don't know where it comes up, and I don't know where it show up, and I don't know what day it'll appear, but I do know this, there is an end, and I know one thing for sure if you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the end is everlasting life. And you'll never see that phrase used about hell or Hades or any of the references to any place of torment. Not a single one. It's always only used about the Christian life and the life with Christ in eternity to come. So I know for sure one thing, when the end comes, my end is secure. Because of what I did? Nope. Because what the church did for me? No. Nope. What other Christians did for me? No. Nope. What Christ did for me? And in simple, childlike faith, embracing Him and His finished work assures my end is everlasting life. Sanctification now, and as it were, eternal life forever. And by the way, the sanctification part of what chapter 6 is all about is for believers in the result of their what I call a new and willing slavery to God. Every tree is known by its fruit. If I were to ask your friends what kind of tree you are, what would they tell me? What would they say about you? Would they say, oh, this is a good tree? Or would they say, no, this is an evil tree. This, this guy, this girl, they put out stuff, man, I'm telling you, that poisons the lives of other people, and other people are pattering their lives after them, and it's ruining them. Well, I hate to hear that when I do, but a good tree, people love to be around, gain from it, are better for every conversation had, and almost enjoy getting to see that person because they know they'll pass on to you nothing but good. Don't you know people like that? People who always help you be better than what you were before you met them. May I say to you, that's what the New Life Baptist Church family ought to be to everybody who meets us. They ought to be better for having met us than they were before we met them. They ought to say, you know, I just realized boy, how much better I am for having known these people. They always help me spiritually. They always encourage me. They always do what need be done to call me accountable. They're just good for me. May God help us as a New Life Baptist Church. May that be said of us. And that's exactly what's said here. Let me go to the last verse and quickly close. Verse number 23. The last one, we've talked about what freedom. We've talked about what fruit. And then in verse 23, we talk about what future. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Probably, uh, probably, n- n- no verse in the Bible is better known than this verse of Scripture. Probably. John three sixteen. probably is better or equal. But there's probably no verse in the Bible better known than this verse of Scripture right here. But interestingly, we usually read it or quote it to somebody we're trying to lead to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's interesting because in actuality, in its context, it's written to Christians. In its context, Paul the Apostle is talking to the believers at Rome. In its context, it goes along with this whole argument about this business of dying to sin because if you don't die to sin down the road somewhere, there's going to be a payday. And the wages of sin is death. And he's been hammering at that all through the chapter. But there's to be noted two absolutes. The first absolute is this, is the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death is earned. Spiritual death is earned. And the fact is, this passage of Scripture puts that very much in its proper place. It is a proper pay for a life that absolutely patterns itself in sin and a slavery to sin and a life that is absolutely void of God and what God wants. That's absolutely adequate for that kind of person. Wages of sin is death. That's good pay. They get exactly what they ought to get. So don't you go around bemoaning the fact that God's been hard on people who are not saved. He is not. He's given ample opportunity for them to come to realize that they are sinners in need of a Savior. He has given them ample opportunities in this country to hear the gospel. He's given them ample opportunity to repent of sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and get in a church where they can grow spiritually. So there ought not be any kind of bemoaning about it with God's people saying God didn't give them a chance. God's unfair. God's unclear. It's very clear all through the Scriptures that what God is saying, the wages of sin is death. I pay, and I pay well what people earn. There's a second absolute here, though, and that is that but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Its emphasis is on the fact that gift, gift, salvation, eternal life is a gift of God. The ideal eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a gift. You don't earn it. Your going to heaven is not compensation for you being a good person. You going to heaven is absolutely a gift. It is absolutely, unequivocally a gift. And don't make it anything else. You say, but you, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and... No, no, you don't end anything. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved, period. So if you get that in your heart, in your mind, then when you share the gospel with people, you won't be adding to the gospel as some people do. Church membership is not an add-on. I don't care if you get saved and you never joined a church, which is not likely, but if you never joined a church, you go to heaven. If you got saved and you never follow the Lord in believers' baptism, which is not likely, but you would still go to heaven. The thief on the cross was crucified by the Son of God and evidence showed that he believed on Him as being the Son of God and yet he never attended church, he never gave an offering, he was not baptized and he didn't do a single thing good. But the Lord said, This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. Why? Why could that be and how could it be? Because God said, I want you to understand this thing. It has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with what my son did. He died for you. He paid this sin debt. And you don't need to worry about that end of it. What you need to do is concern yourself with taking the provisions that have been made and utilizing them for my glory and your good. Notice here in the context of this, the only source for this free gift, this verse says, is the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't miss that. So simply said... But the source of eternal life is in one person. It's not in a religion of Baptists or any other denomination. It's in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage of Scripture underlines that Jesus Christ is not looking for, not interested in you adding him onto an insurance policy against hell. He's not interested in you, if you're a lost person here this morning, of taking what he's been preaching in the Gospels and practicing what he preaches. He's not interested in that. He's interested in you taking him as your personal Savior and believing of what he did on the cross he did for you and believing him and trusting him in that. I was reading this week in Matthew chapter 13 of the parables there. I found it interesting, though it theologically it had nothing to do with what I was looking for. It just noticed in the parable concerning the pearl and the treasure that in each of those cases, the man, the person who owned the field, he sold everything he had to get those fields. He gave up everything to get the pearl and the treasure. I find it interesting in parallel that the sinner who comes to God in Christ for eternal refuge receives the most for the least. He gets eternal life for nothing. For nothing. And I thought, well, how can it be over here in Matthew 13 that he's talking about this illustration and he he makes the application? How did you frame that into this context? Well... In one sense, it costs him everything. You see, if you're here this morning and you've never believed on Christ as Savior, walking down the aisle believing on Christ as Savior, there is a sense in which it'll cost you everything. It is a fact of the New Testament Christ makes that very clear. There is no fine print in His contract with us. He makes it very clear up front. If a person comes after Him, He's expected to turn His back on everything else and everybody else. And to stand with Christ forever. And then it's to be said, as John wrote it, if they started out with us, they'll continue with us. It'll only be those who started out with us, but were really not of us, that went back. There'll be no turning back for the person who really comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, realizing their lost condition, and realizing the only hope they have is in the one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they believe on Him as Savior, and are born again. You see this passage of Scripture? Verse 22 talked about success in this life. It talks about fruit with holiness. In verse 23, it talks about the security in the next life, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As I see it, this chapter closes with this idea, you have a choice to make. You have a choice to make. First choice would be, as in the passage would say, there are two masters. There's either Satan or God. With Satan, he has sin. He, he puts it out. He advertises it. He tries to get people, as it were, entwined in its web. On the other side, God promotes righteousness, and he tries to get you to practice it so your life gets a fruit of holiness. Then there are the two methods. It's either wages of which you earn or a free gift that's handed over to you. Or there is two after effects. One is eternal death or the other is eternal life. So my friend, this morning, the choice is yours, the ball is in your court, and the decision is up to you. One, do you know Christ as Savior? Are you absolutely certain of that relationship? This is no time and this is no place for us to hymn-haw about, I'm not sure, I'd like to know, I, I think so, no time for that. Life is too uncertain and too unsure us to be uncertain about something so serious and, and long as eternity do you know for sure could you stand even in this service and say I am absolutely unequivocally sure that if I died while I'm standing here to be absent from my body would be present with the Lord because I have believed on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior could you say that if you can't we're here to help you And that's the point and the purpose of the United you know, Baptist Church let us do so. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth, and thank you for its directives to each of us. And thank you, Father, for the salvation that's ours in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And thank you for this great text of scripture that Paul has laid open before us. I pray we understand it better, and I pray that each and every person here would take note and understand where they stand regarding being a sinner or a saint. Knowing Christ as Savior and His finished work alone as being the reason, the basis of their salvation. Or they are here without Christ. They have never believed on Him. They've tried on many occasions to be religious but gave up the effort because it's impossible. I pray, whatever the case is, they'll face themselves this morning with that decision saved or lost. And if they're lost, I pray, Father, your Spirit would draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Allow us to help them, show them from your holy word how they can know for certain Christ is their Savior. And be eternally saved. I pray for believers here that we might take to heart the fact that we are right this moment freed from sin. And right this moment we are qualified as servants of God. And right this very moment that we have the process of producing fruit unto holiness for which we would never be ashamed. In fact, someday could be rewarded. And fourthly, we would understand that our eternity, the end of this life, that place we step out of time into eternity. We have an absolute assurance that we have everlasting life, a life with Jesus Christ. I pray this day that you may drive these truths home to our heart and help us to respond accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, 282 in your hymn book, if you need one, Just As I Am is what we sing. If God has spoken to your heart this morning first and foremost about your relationship with Christ, if you're uncertain about it, I would very much encourage you to get that settled before you leave. Don't leave here in an unsettled state. Leave here confident and assured that Christ is your Savior and you're on your way to heaven. But maybe there are other decisions you need to make, baptism, church membership, or just come to pray. Maybe God's put his finger on something in your life that you need to address. Whatever it is, this is the time to address it, deal with it, and then move on from it. Too many people get hung up on a rock in their Christian life and sometimes even in their lost life and they get hung up on something and they can't move on they'll never make any progress because they're hung up on this one thing, whatever it is it's hanging you up, I'd make a request, an admonition and a beseeching of you this morning, why don't you just take it and lay it here on the front pew, pray over it commit it to the Lord and then get up and leave it here and leave knowing He'll do what's right with it He'll do what's right with it. And you need not worry with it again. So as we sing, you do what the Lord would have you do. And everybody will be right. Let us sing together. 282 verse 1 together please. Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you very much for your attention, your time. I do hope you'll be back with us for the evening service. Our choir will be here at 5, 530 minutes prayer, 6 o'clock. Brother Byron will be speaking. Hope you'll bring your Bible and be here with us for that. And after that, we'll have our fellowship in the next building. So hope you'll come and be with us for the whole evening. May the Lord bless you for coming now. Let us pray, and we'll be dismissed. Our Father in heaven, how grateful we are for the great grace of God, the salvation that's in Christ, an eternal salvation, a secure salvation, and one to which we are not making installment payments, a salvation that's secure from start to finish, and all by your great design. We relish the joy of knowing you. We are grateful and thankful for the privilege we have to serve you, and we thank you, Father, for the privilege we've been given to be ambassadors of yours, to go tell other people about you. I pray this week that you'll bless the efforts at the fair booth. May they have your touch upon them, and may every tract and packet that's handed out and given and shared, may your spirit direct it to the heart of men, women, boys, and girls, and do so with conviction so that these friends may come to faith in Christ. I pray... Father, that you'll help us to get all the workers we need to cover all the work responsibilities. May that be done. And pray then you'll bless these folks as they exercise their own rights and the responsibility of confessing Christ. Guide and direct as we go from here. Bless Brother Byram as he opens the scriptures to us tonight. Give him your power and blessing. And give us hearts and ears to hear. And then may we all become doers of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed. <laughs>